0: If you have your Bibles, please open them up with me. I'm ready for 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, a really exciting chapter for me. And so one of the things is, if, uh, if you do not have a Bible, um, we have some loaner Bibles that we'd like to, to give you, so don't be shy. Raise your hand. Carl would love to bring you a Bible. Um, if you need a Bible, you want to borrow a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. It's our gift for you. If you just left your Bible at home then you can uh, just put that back on the counter on your way out. Again, if not, please keep that. That's our gift to you. I read out of the New King James Version Bible. And just so you know, I don't get twisted in translations and in which one and that one. There's lots of good Bible translations. I just happen to be raised up in the New King James, and I've stuck with it. It's a good translation. Um, if you're on your phone or your app, again, um, whatever one you like to read out of is great. If uh, you want to follow word for word with me, I'm in the New King James you know, one of the things about becoming a Christian, about giving your life to Jesus, um, that, that makes it difficult for every one of us. One of the things that's, that's hard in really becoming a, a Jesus freak or, or really being sold out and, and not being ashamed of identify, identifying ourselves as Christ followers or as um, disciples of Jesus is this simple idea of trust. Somebody say amen. You don't even know why yet, but just trust me. We'll get there. The, the, the call of God on your life is He wants you to surrender your heart and life to Him. He wants you to receive Jesus in your heart. And we, we use these expressions in church or, you know, say the sinner's prayer. But basically what that means is that salvation, and we believe strongly that salvation, biblical salvation, and this is really um, heaven or hell, it's that serious. It really is. Whether somebody is going to go to heaven or going to go to hell comes down to one basic biblical principle, and that is knowing Jesus personally. Jesus said to a group of people, they came and, and they, they said to Jesus, and there's many folks in, our, in the world that would probably, unfortunately, are going to identify with this very saying. And in the scene in the Bible, in the Gospels, they said, Jesus, they're in Jesus' presence, and, and, and they said, Jesus, we prophesied in your name. We did good works in your name. Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. And and, and it's almost a plea for them to be accepted into heaven. But unfortunately, Jesus looks at this group who did lots of things in the name of Jesus, and he says to them the scariest words that will ever be uttered in human history. He says to them, depart from me. I never knew you. So the very essence of, of entry into heaven from this example and many others in the Bible is Jesus, Jesus knowing you. Now, obviously, if he's all-knowing, if he's omniscient, if he's all-powerful, he, he knows who you are. He created you. He knows your name. But there's, there's definitely a distinction in the Bible when Jesus says, I never knew you. It's, it's this intimacy that, that God requires for us to go to heaven. There's going to be lots of bad people in heaven. There's going to be lots of good people in hell. Because it doesn't matter if you're good or bad. The thief on the cross, he was bad. I talked to a guy one time, and his theology was, was very different than mine. And, 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 and I asked him about the thief on the cross. And I said, according to your theology, if God accepts good people, then, then what about the thief on the cross? The thief on the cross, in, in everybody's estimation, if he was alive today, we would pretty much all agree that he deserved the sentence that he got in his time. He was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. He was a rabble rouser. He, he was He was very, you know, if we saw him, he was committing crimes in our day, and he was sentenced, we would be thankful that he got this sentence and, and very well deserved it. And this, this gentleman said to me, well, at that moment, when the thief on the cross, who was moments away from dying and going to hell, put his faith in Jesus and said to Jesus, will you remember me? In essence, repented and, and asked Jesus for salvation. And Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Guess who you're going to see in heaven? That thief on the cross. Now, he's not going to have a big, huge mansion. You're going to see a couple of sticks lean together in the mansion row. And that's going to be that guy's house because his rewards are not there because he didn't do anything to earn the rewards that God talked about, but he's still going to walk on the same streets of gold that you and I will walk on. And and this guy to me who believed that God accepted people because they were good, he said, well, at that moment, Jesus looked into his eyes and he saw some goodness in him that was concealed. And and, and it was because of that goodness that he got to go to heaven. (laughs) Had, the guy wasn't good. He was bad. The heart is desperately and wicked above all things who can know it. The, the issue was that he put his faith and his trust in Jesus and the amazing grace of God saved him regardless. You know, the grace of God is difficult. It's difficult for nonbelievers and atheists and people to accept the fact that God will even on the deathbed of a very rotten person receive them into the kingdom forever. I know people that, that like that idea. They're like, that's sweet. I'm just going to live like hell and ask Jesus in my heart before I die. I'm like, well, good luck. You can slip on a banana peel tomorrow and, you know, you, you don't ever know when your last day will be. But I don't want to roll those dice because hotter, hell's hotter than 100 degrees. I'm pretty positive. Now, I got off a little bit, but let me, let me get back to really what I wanted to, to sh- kind of share with you guys in this is that um, – that, that when, when I was, when, when God began to work in my heart, and the Bible says that there's three um, experiences that we have with the Holy Spirit, and, and nobody will come to God, nobody can get saved unless the Father first calls them, the Bible says. And then the Holy Spirit, his job on planet Earth, the Bible says, is to convict the world of sin. You have to first realize that you're a sinner and you need a savior and the Holy Spirit is and is given you God has given you a conscience and the Holy Spirit is working through your conscience and you realize that you need something outside of yourself as the Holy Spirit is lovingly and tactfully calling you and, and calling you into repentance and into relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and as, the, as the Holy Spirit begins to call you, you, you come to that point of decision time. Has anybody like me I was in church, and the pastor said, and the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and convicting me that it was time for me to give my life to Jesus. And, and, the, Holy, and, the, and the pastor said, I want you to stand up and walk down the aisle, and, and, and for those that come up, I'm going to pray for you to receive Jesus in your heart. And my heart's pounding, and I know it's me, I'm supposed to come. But number one, I'm, I'm embarrassed, I'm shy, and I think people are going to think awkwardly of me. And I just want to tell you, there's one place you're safe to get up and come forward where everybody in the room is going to be super excited you did. That's in church. And they're going to clap and they're going to just praise God that, that you responded. It doesn't mean your life's broken or falling apart if you do that and you respond to a call. But, but even if you do come up and you get to the front and the pastor says, in my case, I, I'm going to pray a prayer and I want you to pray after me. And it's a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer, a way that you can know Jesus and Jesus can know you. And you give your heart, you give your life to Jesus to become born again, as the Bible says, as Jesus taught in John chapter 3. And, and at that moment, I'm afraid that if I, if I say this and I mean this, can I trust this God that I'm about to give my life to? Is he going to take good care of me? Is, is he going to, you know, am I going to be able to trust him? And then the other part of me is like, if, if I do ask Jesus in my heart and I do this then I'm going to have to stop doing some things that I kind of like doing. They're kind of fun, you know, and I, I don't really want to stop all these things. I don't want to go to hell. I've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit. I've felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know Jesus is real. I know Jesus lived and died and rose again. And I have to face that fact that Jesus is alive, that, that God created in the beginning. God created the heavens and earth and all that is in them. Genesis 1-1, I know that's true. And, and I have to reconcile with this idea that when, when I breathe my last, When I close my eyes, I'm going to open them and I'm going to see a face. Every one of us. When you close your eyes, you open them. You know what you see? You're going to see Jesus. And on that day, am I going to say to him, excuse, excuse, excuse? And he's going to say, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Or is he going to say to me, welcome, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of the Lord. And so on that moment of decision, one of the things that that keeps us held back so often is, again, this idea, can I trust God? Can I really trust Him? And you know what's actually even more difficult is after I've said, yes, I want to make this commitment. I'm going to follow Jesus, and and, and I'm doing it, and I've been in it a month, a year. It's the day-to-day-to-day life of believing that I can trust in God. You know what? You don't, want to, you don't want to give up parts of your life because you want to hold on to them. Are you saying, in essence, I, I can't trust God to replace these areas of my life with other friends, with other things, with life, um, you know, with, with things that are better than these things I don't want to give up? I, I can trust God with all of these things. Well, I want to tell you, this chapter that we're going to study, and that was intro for this chapter. This chapter is here to tell you one thing, several things, but one of the things that chapter 10 is here to tell you is that you can trust God. Okay, look at your neighbor and tell him, you can trust God. You don't have a neighbor. You could tell me. Oh, okay, all right. So I'm praying, I'm hoping that today um, we can learn that you can trust God. Okay, I just want you to go ahead. Let's just do it one time. I've just kind of been beating around the bush on this topic for years, but I'm tired of it. Let's do it. Does anybody in here actually take notes when I teach? Okay, a couple of you. Raise your hands if you take notes. All right, good. I decided this morning in prayer um, that I'm going to provide notebooks, little little books that I want to give to you, and and I'll have them made, maybe printed with our our church logo or something on them. Um, Again, I encourage you as we study the Word of God together to take notes. Okay, if you take notes in your Bible in your margin, um, and it's not about creating necessarily a journal of notes that you're going to use as a commentary or something later, but it does kind of change how we listen and how we learn. Um, and it's just one of the modalities of learning, especially in lecture-style learning, which is the way we retain the least amount of information. And so taking notes kind of helps that a little bit. And I got lots of notes today, um, lots of facts I want to give you today. It's kind of a teaching chapter today. But the, the chapter itself, um, one of the, again, and the, the underlying idea of what Paul is saying is that you can trust God. You know why we have the, the, the detailed stories of the lives of the folks in the Old Testament? You know, in the Old Testament, you don't find verses like "the just shall live by faith." God will provide all of your needs in Christ Jesus, and these theological and these deep statements. Instead, you get stories like, like you know, Moses um, and, and the children of Korah, and, they, and there's these, or, or Balaam is, is riding a donkey, and his donkey starts talking to him, and you know, Noah gets in a fish, and he, and, and God spits him up on the shore six hundred miles away to get him where he wanted to go. But you get these just detailed everyday stories of people's lives, but all that stuff in the Old Testament is so valuable in, in teaching us intrinsically and pouring into our soul and our life that we can trust God. So it's very important as, as Christ followers that we, 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 we read the Old Testament, we study the Old Testament, that we know the Old Testament. We definitely are not a people that divide between the old and the new. They're both the Word of God. They're all the Word of God. Now some of the Old Testament can be a little laborious. And, you know, I encourage you guys, if, if, you, if you open your Bible and you say, I'm going to read the Bible and you open it in Genesis and you're going to read all the way through to Revelation, at some point in your walk maybe you want to do that. But in the beginning or, or at some stage it's probably not the right thing to do because you're going to get to Leviticus. And you're going to get to the, the, the law of bodily discharge. And you're going to go, why do I need to know how to deal with bodily discharge? And and, and, and and pages of genealogies and laws and, and stuff that's just gonna bog you down and you're gonna quit reading. You know, and, and so but you, you can skip that stuff. I remember the first time being a young believer, one of the pastors said, Do you see all that stuff? Just skip to the next page or the next chapter and I was like, I can do that? God won't be mad? Like, yeah, it's cool, we'll go for it. Just keep reading. But um so anyways, let's let's take a look at it. So uh first Corinthians chapter ten. First word, moreover. Now we have to stop. See how far we get. But we're doing Bible study, so we're studying the Bible. So the first word is moreover. Now, I've taught you guys over and over again the idea of when Paul is writing, he writes this word called therefore. We all understand what the, what the therefore means in the Bible, right? Paul says um, whenever you see a therefore when you're reading the Bible, it's therefore, it's application. It, it's, it's, he's going to give you like a, a, a chapter of theology and doctrine and and things that are true about God. And then he's going to say, therefore, since you know all these things in the last chapter, therefore, whenever you see a therefore, the rule is you have to go back and see what it's there for. So the therefore is chapter. Now, this is how you apply it to your life. It's application. It's what do you do with all this information that I just gave you? Now, this word here, as we start this chapter moreover is similar to a therefore, but it's not a therefore. It's a moreover. So in a moreover. It's like Paul has already given us a concept or a thought, and he's going to give us more information. Or maybe, in this case, he's going to give us a different way of looking at something that he's already unpacked one way. In chapter 8, we as a church, we went through chapter 8, and our title was Christian, anybody remember? Christian Liberty. Very good. Christian Liberty. And also the title of my message was Gray Areas. Because in Christian living... Um, as Christ followers, there's gray areas. There's things the Bible doesn't define on whether we're allowed to do them or we're not allowed to do them. And Paul has used an example that's very hard for us to really translate to today, but it was meats offered to idols. And in, in Paul's day, and especially in Corinth, there was many temples and, and, and many um, pagan rituals. And every day there would be, be tons of, of lambs and meat that would be in these pagan temples sacrificed to idols. And so Paul said, this is again a gray area, if, if, if meat has been sacrificed to a pagan god or to an idol, as Christians should we eat that meat? And that's where we got into the topic of Christian liberty. So chapter 10, this moreover, is kind of another way. Of basically the sum of chapter 8 was, yes, there's, there, there's, those gods are false, they're fake, they have no power, they can do nothing over your life, you can eat the meat, it's, it's fine. The only, the only uh, contingency was really that if you by you eating that meat, If it caused another brother, a weaker brother or sister in Christ, to falter or to stumble in their faith, maybe for their conscience sake, you would abstain in that case. But it's not bad or wrong, and there's nothing really to the meat. It just has the power over you. It's, it's, you know, what what if I take a meat and I say, I'm going to sacrifice this meat to this frog god. There's no frog god. Can I eat that meat? Well, sure, it doesn't have no effect over you as a Christian. It's false, it's fake, so Paul says you have at it. But in this chapter... He's going to say, let's look at it again, or, or let's get a moreover. Let's look at it from a little different angle. And then he says, Brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses, the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these, were, these things became our examples. Everybody say, our examples. That's key there in verse 6. I want you guys to highlight, underline, became our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as, somebody say, examples that they were written for. When I pause, that's for you to read the next two words. I know you're following along with me. They, they were written for our admonition. Are you guys getting the, the theme here? Examples, admonition. Um, they became our examples. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who think he stands take heed, he lest he fall. Okay, so we're going to start here. And now Paul is going to give us um, an Old Testament example of Christian living. And what he's going to key on specifically is the nation of Israel. I'm sorry, yeah, the nation of Israel who were were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And he's going to say that these Old Testament examples, I don't want you to be ignorant of them, brother. We're going to talk about that in a second. Because they were given for our admonition. They were given as an example for us. So as you look at, listen, as God orchestrated the lives of two million Jews who went into Egypt 70 people, and 400 years later came out um, as 2 million when, when Moses came to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And then they wandered, they came out of Egypt, they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. They eventually crossed the Jordan River into what is modern Israel. It was, it was full of the pagan um, Canaanite people who they battled then through the book of Joshua and on through Israel's, Israel's history um, to, to the current day of, of this battle. Well, this, this picture that God gave us in the Old Testament, Paul is saying here directly that this is an example of your Christian living. It's an exact parallel of, of our lives today. And I'll give you where we, we draw those lines and, and we look at them today. But I can remember reading the, the children of Israel as a new believer and reading this story of the Exodus, amazing story covered lots of books in the Old Testament through the Torah, covered in many facets in different ways. And, and, And no people in all of human history besides this group of people that Moses came to and told Pharaoh, let my people go, witnessed more bona fide miracles of God than these folks. They saw the ten plagues in Egypt. They stood at the edge of the Red Sea when God parted the Red Sea and they went through on dry land. They watched the Egyptian army with 600 chariots follow them in, into the Red Sea crossing, and the Red Sea closed and drowned the Egyptian army. There was a, a group of higher thinkers who said that the, the Red Sea was not really a miracle. There was this isthmus that kind of covered the land there, and at certain times of the year when the wind blew, the water would only be like six inches deep right there, and, and they just crossed through on six inches of, of, of water. And I'm like, well, that's an amazing miracle then. How do you trying to discount the miracles of God. But what you missed was then that God drained the enti- drowned the entire Egyptian army in six inches of water because they went through. So, so they get through the other side and, and now beginning a 40-year march, 11-day journey that, that God called them. But because of their unbelief, because of their doubting and murmuring and complaining and God dealing with this people, now, you have to understand, many of the Old Testament um, laws and, and, and of Moses and these things that don't make sense to us today, God is dealing with a people that, two million people that were slaves for 400 years in Egypt with no real training. You know, part of the law of Moses has to, one of the laws of Moses, like I told you, the, the I, I teased on this, you know, on my pastor friend's call, and are like, oh, I'm teaching the Bible study. I'm like, oh, yeah, what are you teaching? Numbers 12, the bodily discharge, the law of bodily discharge, but... Those things, one of the laws of Moses was that you had to go outside the camp to poop. <laughs> yeah, like that's in the law. Well, e- Even the dietary, yeah, the, the physical things that God was teaching his people, they didn't know these things, they didn't have these things. And so, you know, so you read some of these things like, is God really concerned about where we poop? No, God's not really concerned. But he put these things are in the law because they were necessary, they were sanitary. You know during the Black Plague in Europe, millions of people died? You know the one group of people that were not affected by the black plague? The Jews. They didn't die. And so much so that they, they begin to blame the Jews saying that they caused it or they created because they were the only ones that weren't dying. The reason why they weren't dying was because of the law of Moses was full of sanitary laws and hygiene laws. And they, they, they practiced good hygiene and, and according to the law of Moses. But God had to give them that when they were leaving Egypt and going into the wilderness for 40 years. So then as they're in the wilderness, the Bible says that God led them by a cloud a day and a pillar of fire at night. And then when they were hungry, they'd wake up in the morning and manna would be all over the ground. So much manna to feed two million people. I forget the, the vast amount of manna that it would take every day to feed these people. And if you went out and you picked up the manna, God gave you only enough for one day. And if you gather enough for two days, the Bible said by the next day it would stink and it would, it, would, it would get maggots and mildew. And so you go back in the pantry on, on day two. You know, you slept in that day. You didn't go out and get the manna. You go out and get, get in the pantry and it stinks and it's full of mildew and you've got to get rid of it. Except for on Friday and Saturday, on the Sabbath, you, so Friday morning you would go out. You could collect enough for two days. And then Saturday morning when you went in, it was still fresh. But it only worked on Friday and Saturdays. And then the, and then they were they were hungry they were tired of manna they ate so much manna every day that's all their diet consisted of you know they had everything manna you can imagine manna cotti they had you know manna 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 sandwiches manna you know you name it like that guy from Forrest Gump with the shrimp and so they said we want meat and so so God says okay and and, and quail would fly knee high and they would just club the quail down and. And it says that you know, it became a curse to them because they were so, it was coming out of their noses and they were just feasting on this manna. But they, they watched miracle after miracle. Moses hits the, the rock in the wilderness. And what happened? Water came out to provide for them when they needed a drink. They watched miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and what conclusion did they come to? Oh, man, can I ever trust God? God has just shown up in every area of my life. I don't know how I'm going to make this next house payment, but I know God's going to show up. I I know that there's sickness, but God's going to show up. I know that there's trouble and there's anxiety, but God's going to show up because He's shown up so many times and I saw so many miracles. You should have seen the death of the firstborn. I mean, we put the blood on our doorpost and we went to bed afraid that night and just not knowing. And and, and we woke up in the morning and the angel of the Lord had passed over our house. But our neighbors, they weren't so fortunate because they didn't believe in God and they didn't put the blood of the Lamb on the door and their firstborn were dead in the morning. But God was faithful to our house. And then when we stood on the the Red Sea, man, we were so afraid. We just thought, okay, this is it. We're definitely going to die. And God showed up and did an amazing miracle. The Red Sea parted. Man, we can trust God. Is that what they said? Man, they just kept complaining and murmuring every turn of the way. And you read this story and you just want to grab one of them by the throat and just shake them. Did you not remember what just happened in the last chapter? You can trust God. What's wrong with you? That's how you feel when you read this stuff. Like, what's wrong with these people? And then in the next chapter, God will show up and do something amazing. You're like, okay, this is the one. They're really going to get it. And then the next chapter. You brought us out here to die. We want to go back to Egypt. Well, you didn't remember the taskmasters. And we had leeks. And we had garlic. And we had... You know, it's like, oh, yeah, you also had whips across your back. And you hovered over the toilet at night. You slept with one foot on the floor. I'll never drink again if I could just... Forget about the things in your old life that you only remember the you know what you perceive to be the good things but the story of the children of Israel is this when you want to grab one of them and shake them god god reminds you that's you that's you you are that guy look in the mirror because i gave you all of that 600 years of watching these people's lives from A to Z to show you that your life is exactly the same. And no matter how many times God shows up in our lives and He does miracles and we have the Word of God that we can trust Him, we can trust Him, what happens tomorrow when something goes awry? We get afraid. We don't trust Him. And, the, and these, these Old Testament examples, these New Testament promises and truths are there to remind us on a daily basis because we have a loving God we have, a, we have a God who's so gracious and so merciful that He wants to continually remind you and, and continually have grace upon your life to say to you, even when you've slapped Him in the face because you just refuse to continue to trust Him. And He says, He just, just lovingly reach out say, it's okay, I love you, I'm going to be here for you. I love you, I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait for you till you want to meet with me. I'm going to wait for you till you, you know, I'm here for you, I'm here for you, I'm here for you. And, and that's what these Old Testament examples are. Now, here's a little bit of um, kind of notes thing, heady thing as we get into this. Um, it's kind of parenthetical in a way, but I do want to cover it because I think it's super cool. Um, But here in the beginning, look at verse number one with me really quick. It says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be, everybody say? I love it. Someone said ignorant. Someone said unaware. Okay, remember that. Here in my new King James, it says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. So in the King James, the word is ignorant. Now six times, everybody say six times. You can do this study. Google this. This is a good homework for you guys. Um, go to your concordance, go to your Blue Letter Bible, and go to your word search in your Bible and put in the use the use the King James version to start because they're consistent in the King James. Um, ignorant. Type in the word ignorant and go to the places in the New Testament where you find the word ignorant, and you'll find that six times Paul makes a, a, a statement in the New Testament that he doesn't want you and me to be ignorant regarding. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now, here in the New King James, it's the word unaware. It's the same Greek word um, translated ignorant five other places in the New Testament, translated unaware here, but it's the same idea, okay? What's fascinating is that prophetically, as the Holy Spirit directs Paul to write, the six areas that he doesn't want you and I to be ignorant in and doesn't want the church of our day to be ignorant about, guess where the church has the most struggle in theology and doctrine and where we're the most ignorant in these exact six areas that Paul lays out in in the in the Bible, now, let me give them to you real quick, Romans chapter eleven, Paul says, "Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant of the mystery of Israel, so number one is god 's plan for the Jew and the nation of israel okay god 's place of israel and god 's economy and so the, in Romans eleven Paul lays out for us the relationship with of God in Israel, the church in Israel, and Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant of that. And again, an area of how does Israel fit in, and it's an area the church again struggles. And number two, in Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning Satan's devices. And that's again an area where, where the, the church can struggle and be ignorant that Satan and his devices... Um, number three, and these are not in order. These are just my one through six. They're all in there, but they're not necessarily in order. In First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning the rapture of the church and those that have fallen asleep. So in uh, First Thessalonians 4, Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning the rapture and biblical theology. Again, probably one of the biggest hotbed issues in the church is the rapture and about theology And that's a place where Paul's concerned, again, prophetically, that we wouldn't be ignorant. And then in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. We're in chapter 10 today, and since I've covered one verse in 30 minutes, I don't know where we'll be next week, but eventually we're going to get to chapter 12, 13, and 14 in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to deal with spiritual gifts, all of the spiritual gifts, and Paul is going to... Um, really unpack, and if you're, if you're interested in the idea of how spiritual gifts are to function in the church, how they're to function in our personal lives, make sure you're here over the next couple of weeks because we're going to go through and really unpack what the, what the Bible teaches about spiritual gifts, gifts of prophecy, of words of wisdom, of knowledge, of speaking in tongues, and all those things, and how they apply. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, number four, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. Number five, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says he doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning the troubles that we faced as Christ followers. This one's huge, because Paul, listen, God doesn't want you to. Paul doesn't want you and I to be ignorant concerning the fact that if you're a Christ follower, you're going to have trouble in this world. Being a follower of Christ doesn't mean that God keeps you; that your life becomes Disneyland when you become a Christ follower. In matter of fact, the closer you get to God, and the more God uses you, the more opposition you're going to face. You know, and, and, and it's supposed to be that way. Nobody faced more opposition than the Apostle Paul. If you don't have opposition in your, in your life as a Christ follower, then check your position. Satan's going to leave you alone until you're kicking on the gates of hell. And you're trying to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And as you do that, you become a warrior and a soldier for Christ, then there, there's a battle that takes place. But, but you're going to face troubles and Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant because, again, you're going to fail if you believe that, you're, that, that being a Christ follower means that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. And why does bad things happen to good people? And I'm a good person, and why are bad things happening to me, God? And if you're this good God, then why did my car run out of gas yesterday? Because you forgot to put gas in it, stupid. But you're going to face troubles number six Um, is is here in chapter 10. Paul does not want us to be, or the Lord through Paul, doesn't want us to be ignorant concerning Old Testament typology. So again, really quickly, 1 to 6, if you write them down. Romans chapter 11, the mystery of Israel. 2 Corinthians 11, Satan's devices. 1 Thessalonians 4, prophecy and the rapture. 1 Corinthians 12, spiritual gifts. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, The troubles we face as Christians, or in other words, trials and tribulations. And then here in 1 Corinthians 10, Old Testament typology are the six. Again, you guys can do that for homework if you like this this week and and check that out. Okay. All right, let's look at and we kind of went through a little bit. I don't have time to go through everything verse by verse, but I've been covering the heart of really what this chapter is about. So, again, verse number six. Now, these became our examples. Now. I want to tell you something about the Old Testament. If you like to turn pages, you can turn with me. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 24. Jesus, post-resurrection, is walking on the road to Emmaus. He rose from the grave. Um, he's now making appearances. At one time, he appeared to more than 500. Other times, he appears to individuals. In this particular scene in Luke 24, there's two guys walking on the road on the way to Emmaus, And Jesus joins them. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. He's just kind of having a good time. Jesus is walking next to him, messing with him a little bit. And they said, we had hope that Jesus would be the Savior. And he's like, oh, yeah, you know. And he doesn't really tell him who he is in the beginning. And then eventually he reveals himself to him. But look at what Jesus says to these two guys in verse 24. It says, or Jesus says, ought not, verse 26, the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus, I would love to have that Bible study on tape, man. Goodness gracious, that, that would just save a lot of trouble. We'd have so much information. And we got to just dig it out ourselves, I guess, and the reason why God didn't give it to us that way. But, but Jesus tells these guys, let's go back to Moses. So Jesus starts telling them, look, this story in Moses... It's about me, and here's how it's about me, and here's how it teaches about my death and my resurrection. I'm sure he could have went to Genesis 22. Abraham took Isaac, his only son, up onto a mountain where he would sacrifice him. Moses was took the or Abraham took a big knife and he was going to put it into his son. And Moses is a type of the father, and, and that's me. And then and then God said, no, stop, don't kill him. He's going to provide a lamb. And, and, you know, and all of the many, many, many parallels Genesis 22 has to tell a picture, a perfect picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the story all the way back from Genesis 22. Hundred different parallels in Genesis 22 to, to the story. And Jesus is expounding and he's telling him all these things. So here when Paul says, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning Old Testament typology, we have to understand that the Old Testament is about Jesus. You can find Jesus on every page and every chapter of the Old Testament that somewhere it points to Jesus. I remember hearing a pastor say, I never forgot it, everything in the Old Testament is an index finger and it points to the cross. And everything in the New Testament is an index finger and it points back to the cross. And both point to the middle of the cross of Jesus where he died and he rose again. And, and so, um, hey, let's look at the types really quick because the typology is very important. So in this story of Egypt, Egypt is a type of the world and, and our old life in the world. So they were in bondage in Egypt. So Egypt itself is a type of the world. And, and, and then the, 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 the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were in bondage. That's you and I um, in, in our Christian walk In the parallels that I've already made when I said that, that, you know, as we look at their lives and we get frustrated, realize that that's our lives being lived out. And then, um, so they were enslaved in bondage. It was a type of sin. You know, the Bible says, as were some of you before you came to Christ, you were sinners, idolaters, these things, as were some of you. That was us, them. And then as they come out of Egypt, that's, that's a picture of the new birth, being born again. Now we're Christ followers. We're born into Jesus. We've been set free from our bondage. And it parallels us getting saved and coming to Jesus. And then as they cross over the Red Sea, it's a picture of our water baptism. As they wander in the wilderness, um, this is the 40 years of them wandering. This is the process of the time you get saved until the time you die, really, of what's called sanctification. And it's just everyday Christian living. Sanctification means the process by how we become more like Jesus every day. We're constantly being sanctified. You know that weird verse where the Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? It's the idea of 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 being sanctified or becoming more like Jesus, learning to trust Him and having highs and having lows. And so that's a picture of our um, Christian living and our sanctification. And then when they, uh, they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, that's a picture. Anybody want to take a guess? Some people say heaven because they had finally reached the promised land and, and heaven is what's promised to you and I. The problem of it being heaven is that what was in the promised land when they got there? Giants. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And they had to go in, and what did they have to do when they got into Israel? They had to do what with those giants? They had to fight them. They had to kill them. Does that sound like heaven to any of you? No, no. There's still spiritual battles. And so the Red Sea Crossing is, is, is a picture of our baptism into the Holy Spirit, into the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that um, Christian living where God fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit, those three experiences that we have with the Holy Spirit, the para, where the Holy Spirit comes alongside us before we were believers and He begins to convict us of sin, the end where the Holy Spirit comes in our lives, Jesus I ask you into my heart to become my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and, and Jesus is now in our heart. The third experience, the para and epi. The Ape is the overflowing. You know, Jesus um, breathed on the disciples in John chapter 21 and He said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If Jesus says to the disciples, if the Jesus says to you and me, Receive the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? You're going to receive the Holy Spirit, homeboy? Huh, I mean, so then why did Jesus say right after that, go to Jerusalem and tarry there, wait there, until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit from on high? Because there was yet a, a third, a separate experience that God wants you and I to have with the Holy Spirit. It's that of P. And, and that's the crossing of the Red Sea. It's the It's where the... You know the Holy Spirit has you and now you have the Holy Spirit and now you've surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life as a Christ follower. And God is, you're teaching Sunday school and you're telling the kids and and one of them is is moved by something that you did or said and you don't know where it came from. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that quickened you, that was a part of you, that helped you or something where God gave you a gift gift of knowledge or wisdom or you saw a guy on the street and and the Holy Spirit spoke to you to go and, and reach out to him and love on him or do something for him. And, and that was that working of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And so we see the Red Sea crossing as that experience, but it can't be heaven again because the giants are there. And we do have battles here in this life as we go through that. We see through all of the children of Israel, God's supernatural provision. Um, and, 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 you know, again, it's, it's still a type. It's, it's, a, it's a picture of God's supernatural provision for you and me now. This one's important. I don't want you to miss this one. God supernaturally provided for two million Hebrews leaving Egypt in a desert, a vast desert that was just without a ton of resources, and God supernaturally provided everything they need. And then he says to us, "I don't want you to be ignorant about the typology of the Old Testament, that this is a picture that God will supernaturally provide for all its needs, okay? And those promises are made over and over again in very plain in the New Testament. And then, um, and then we see the rock that we'll talk about here briefly as we close. The rock is a picture of what? Paul's going to tell us here, the rock is Jesus. And, and there's a perfect um, idiom, there's a perfect typology of this rock and the water coming forth and Jesus being the living water. And we're going to close with that last part of this, Um, study today. So let's look at that. Oh, verse 3, 4. I think we can say we made it through 13 verses. I read 13 verses. Um, Look at verse 4 really quickly. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that... Is that Chinese or English? Is that hard to understand or do I need to go get a Bible scholar to help you understand what that verse means? The rock was Christ. Okay? So the rock, it's, now don't get weird if you're like from Joshua Tree or something and, oh, God is in that rock and that tree. No, he's not. He created that rock and that tree, but he's not in either one of them and you're not supposed to worship either one of them. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay? Jesus is our rock. It's a type. It's an idiom. Jesus wasn't the rock in the in 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 heaven like that guy in the foursome thing, you know, where the rock talks and beats people up and stuff. No, that wasn't. He wasn't the rock. Jesus. It's a type. uh, It's a perfect picture of who and what Jesus is. Now, if you'll remember, the story is that um, the people were murmuring and complaining once again, and Moses went to the people, and I'm sorry, Moses went to the Lord. And the Lord said, Moses, I want you to go to the rock. And he said, I want you to hit the rock, and water will come out. And so what happened? Moses goes to the rock. He takes that staff of Aaron, and he hits the rock. And what happens? Water comes forth and provides for the people. Now, later on in the history of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, um, again they're they're thirsty and there's no water and Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord says Moses I want you to go and he said I want you to speak to the rock and water will come out and so Moses goes and he's he's frustrated and you know Moses is a really cool guy right Moses is is like the first pastor figure he leads these people he's 2 million grumbling you know to Willis Springs Calvary Chapelites through the wilderness for they complain about everything you know and But Moses is there, and and, and he's frustrated. But the Bible says about Moses, he's the humblest man that's ever lived in human history. How do we know that? Because he told us. But also what's funny is the guy was really humble. Obviously, if the Holy Spirit records that, it's true. Moses was super humble. But he also, at times, you see, like, anger problems in him. So I know you, I guess you could be humble and then still get really, really mad at other times of your life and keep your humble title. But he was a humble beast. So Moses is having a day, and the people say, we're thirsty after he's already in. And so he comes to the people, and he's angry. And like you and I, when I talked about, you know, like, as you read these stories, you sometimes want to grab them by the neck and shake them. Moses was feeling like that. Like, you, how can you guys forget what God has already done? And so he's so frustrated. And, he just, like, and so he goes to the people, and he's like, must I smite this rock a second time? And he takes that staff of, of Aaron's, and he goes, and in front of all the people, he hits the rock, and water comes out. And then God kind of taps Moses on the shoulder and he says, Ooh, Moses, let's come over here and talk. And he says, you misrepresented me to the people. And because of that, you will not enter the promised land. And immediately your heart sinks because you're like, that seems so harsh at first. Like this poor guy, Moses, has just done nothing but give his life to serve God in, in a very difficult circumstance. And the one thing that he really deserves and wants is to Finally gets across the Red Sea, I'm sorry, across the Jordan River into Israel, into the promised land. And the very one thing that he's worked so hard for because of this one mistake, God says, Moses, you can't go in. And 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 then Moses, God says to Moses, Moses, listen, and this was so important for you and I to understand. He said, You misrepresented me to the people. And, and I don't know how God pulled this one off. But he said, I'm not mad at him. How are you not mad at him? Who could not be mad at these people? Only God. Only, only the grace of God. And God says, Moses, I'm not even mad at them. And you misrepresented me, Moses. They, you, you, you represented that I'm angry with these people, and I'm not angry with these people. I love these people, and I have grace and mercy for these people. And you know how that translates to your life and my life? Listen, I want to tell you this. I want you to receive this and take this as word from God for you today. God's not mad at you. God is not mad at you. Oh, but you don't know what I've done. Oh, I know what the children of Israel did for 40 years. And you haven't done worse than that. And God wasn't mad at them. Now, bigger than that, there was something else going on in all of this. Because Paul tells us here that that rock was who? Christ. And, and, and you know what happens when um, the picture of Christ, God was trying to paint an Old Testament picture, which he did from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And Moses ruined the picture. Because if the rock was Christ, one time Jesus was smitten. How was he smitten? He was hung on a cross. Now, post-cross, post-resurrection, where you and I live, in order for, for you and I to get saved, does Jesus need to go back and hang on a cross again? How do we get saved now? What did Paul tell us in Romans? that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart the Lord Jesus you shall be saved. And so the rock is a picture of Jesus. Jesus would hang on a cross he'd be smitten and then after that we would speak to the rock and by faith we would receive Jesus in our heart. It was just a picture of Jesus and Moses blew the type. And for that God gave him punishment. Now now don't don't feel too bad for Moses. He got to go to the promised land. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration later. God brought him post-resurrection and brought him in his glorified body and he got to see it. There was another problem was that no matter what happened, whether Moses did that right or not, Moses was never going to be able to cross the Jordan River into the promised land because Moses represented the law. And the law will never lead us into grace. The law will never lead us into promised land. And God could never allow Moses who represented the law to lead us into the promised land. Only the grace of God. Who led us into the promised land? Joshua. Joshua is the, is the Old Testament name for Yeshua or Jesus. It's a type of Jesus. Jesus leads you and I into the promised land. And when you strike that rock or you speak to that rock and water comes out, Jesus said in John chapter 4, I am the living water. And, and, and if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. And so whatever in your life that you're drinking of to, to cure the thirst that only God's going to fill in your life, only Jesus can do for that for you. You will thirst again. We fill that void in our lives with everything under the sun, drugs and alcohol and finances and studies and anything you can think of, we, we try to use to feel that thirst in our lives. And that rock in the, in the nation in, in Jordan and Israel, that rock as they, as they wandered through the wilderness, was a picture of Jesus, and that water came out, is what Jesus said in John chapter 4, I am the the water of life, and he who lives and believes uh, in me, he will never thirst again, amen, amen, let's stand together, let's invite the worship team up, we're going to sing a last song, and I want to give an invitation for you to receive Jesus in your heart today, to be your Lord and Savior, if you have never done it before, or if God has called you during this time, I am going to invite you to leave your seat and, and walk on up here. I'm going to have you stand in this area up here. And then as the song um, finishes, I'm just going to pray a simple prayer for you. And, and, and you can, um, is the prayer room open today? Carl, make sure the prayer room was open today. Then we'll invite you. have a Bible for you. And uh, I want to talk to you and pray for your individual, individual needs when you leave the sanctuary. If you make a left into the conference room where the women's bathroom is, there'll be some folks back there that just want to say a prayer for you. Um, if you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, if you want to, maybe you've known Jesus, you've asked Him in your heart before, and you're just not walking right, and the Holy Spirit has spoke to you today, that today is the day of salvation, I'm going to invite you to come. I'm going to invite you to come just as you are. It's a step of faith. Jesus never called anybody privately. He didn't call anybody. He never called anybody in a closet in a secret way so nobody would know. Everything Jesus did, He did it publicly and openly, because your decision for Christ has to be with faith and, and, and unashamed. And so we're going to invite you to come. And for whatever reason you want to be prayed for, we'll pray for you. And, and today, rather than have the pastors come up and pray, I'm just going to pray for those that come up, for, especially for salvation today if anybody wants to get saved. And whether we have one or none or 20 come up, God, God, to God be the glory. And we're going to invite you to be bold. And, and here's the deal. Don't come unless the Holy Spirit is calling you. But if the Holy Spirit is calling you and you're feeling conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to ask that you be bold and you step out. It could be the difference of heaven and hell in your life. And just come up and stand right here for about a half a song. As the song ends, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Christians, it's time to be praying. It's time to be praying for salvation and for for God's Holy Spirit to be working in our church and in our midst. Amen? Amen. So as the song plays, we'll just invite you guys to come if you'd like and, and stand up here in front.